Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anise Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, you'll hear a conversation about measuring quality in cancer care with Dr. Karen Adelson. Dr. Adelson is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Chief Quality Officer for Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. So when I was recruited here about a year ago to Yale, I was told that we delivered really high-quality, outstanding, state-of-the-art cancer medicine. So what do we need a quality officer to tell us what to do for? What does a quality officer do? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, Increasingly in the field of medicine, we need to be able to look at and quantify the kind of care that we're giving. Um, We need to look at aligning the care we're giving with national metrics, with patient satisfaction, and, and really begin to define the field of what quality care is. Well, how do we do that? I mean, I can tell you what I think quality care is in my subspecialty, and mm-hmm. people come to me because I'm an expert. So shouldn't that, shouldn't I be able to set that as the goal and say I'm delivering quality care? So I think we all like to believe that we are providing the best quality care. Unfortunately, especially in the field of cancer, we sometimes do things that don't actually have positive outcomes on patients' quality or quantity of life. And increasingly, as the amount of um, federal dollars available, and actually all of our dollars, for providing health care are being stretched further and further, we need to start looking at how to get the greatest value for the care we give. And there's different ways to do that. You know, value can be um, defined by really increasing quality or decreasing the cost that goes into care. And sometimes in certain situations with cancer, I think the actually increasing value aligns with increasing quality. Hmm. So is there an agreed upon definition of quality? I mean, would your vision of quality and my vision of quality be the same or are there national norms? I think that it's a, this is an ongoing discussion. I think there's certain accepted elements. Um, so quality is really giving patients the right treatment at the right time and getting the best outcomes. Value takes into account what we're spending on those elements. So just thinking this through, if uh, if nationally every place were to agree upon a certain set of quality standards, if those, mm-hmm. that's the right word, mm-hmm. then it probably wouldn't matter where you got treated, right? I mean, you wouldn't come to a specialty hospital like Smilo, or am I misreading that? Mm-hmm. I think that that is, again, this is part of the national discussion, and I think this is actually a critical issue because there are certain things that we know are better um, provided when you see disease specialists in your area. Um, however, proving that that care is better is is hard, and it's challenging. Um, 
in cancer for many, many years across the country, including at the best cancer centers, we never actually tracked our outcomes. That information is not easy to get from our standard electronic health records. And so to justify why care at specialty centers is more expensive is really challenging. Hmm. And so that would be the value piece if the quality were better, even if it were more expensive, mm-hmm. that might be lead to better value. Mm-hmm. Is that right? But but we know sometimes with certain diseases, patients treated at specialty centers for especially high volume surgical centers do better than patients who are treated by you know doctors who see less of those special cases. So it sounds very complicated. Are there you know complicated equations or programs or algorithms that take these data and give you a quality metric so we're this field is really in its nascent stages and because the meaningful long term outcomes like how was the um did the patient live or die how long did they live how long did the patient go before their cancer recurred those data types which are called outcome measures actually take a very long time to get so instead quality metrics or endorsed quality metrics have often focused on very simple process measures, measures like did a patient with stage 3 colon cancer get offered chemotherapy because that's in line with the guidelines? Did a patient with a hormone-sensitive breast cancer get offered hormonal modulation? These are process measures that are relatively easy to get, but when you actually look at, you know, cancer centers who have tried to participate in different quality systems where they're actually reporting, most of which is strictly voluntary, you see that that providers are really about 97% adherent with those process metrics. And so I would say those aren't even really quality measures. Those are minimum standards of care. <laughs> and, and the real challenge in the field is how do we begin to define that we're giving care that is in line with what patients want and value? So you're fairly new to Yale and Smilo, is that right? So I actually went to medical school here at Yale and finished in the late 90s and then went back to my home in New York and spent uh, many years at Mount Sinai where I built um, a very busy breast cancer practice. And in the last several years through, um, which really began with running the implementation of our electronic health record and beginning to look at how we can use um, the electronic health record to really improve the kind of care we're giving, I became increasingly interested in quality and in quality research, and ultimately um, was really happy to come back to come back to Yale as the chief quality officer. And how long have you been here? I've been here six months now. Gotcha. So you come six months uh, up the, I was going to say up the turnpike, but I'm mm-hmm. dating myself up I-95, mm-hmm. um, and you're at this hospital that wasn't built mm-hmm. right when you were here before, mm-hmm. and you're the quality officer, and you've got this office and a computer, and how do you, like, take the temperature mm-hmm. of the quality? I mean, what, what mm-hmm. how do you start that? So I think quality, assessing it, there's sort of low-lying fruit, which is looking at things like our rates of infection and our rates of readmission and the our inpatient mortality rate, all of which was an ongoing field before I got here, um, and making sure that those things are hitting where they need to, and sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. Um, and then it's really trying to understand the culture of the of um, the oncologists and the cancer providers at Yale and understanding where we need to start to move that culture to really be providing the care that patients want. 
I know that um, oftentimes when clinicians hear quality and value and metrics or some Mm -hmm. combination of those kinds of words, they're thinking cost savings, limiting Mm -hmm. care, Mm -hmm. telling me what to do, taking away my autonomy. Yes. Do you you get that pushback? I I run up against that a a lot. And so I think – I think there's a couple ways to think of it. We know that care that is provided in a standardized manner has less variation and less room for error. And when you give sort of every patient who meets certain categories the same kinds of treatment, you can begin to study the outcomes. And that's how we'll be able to define whether the care we're giving at Yale is better than where than the care that's being given at the community hospital around the corner. But until we standardize that care, we can't make that argument. So have you gotten buy-in from many of your colleagues? So... Um, so yes and no. I think there's there's certain of us who are very comfortable um, practicing in the way we've always practiced and not being held accountable. But I think increasingly everybody is starting to understand that we are not going to be able to get away with that. Um, both payers, government payers and private insurance companies want to know that you're pri- providing evidence-based care. Um, And so we're really looking at the process of beginning to implement clinical pathways here at Yale with, with of course, the option to customize those pathways to take our expertise as disease specialists into account and to also take into account the research that we do here. So another issue with culture that I wanted to talk about, and when you start to say that – sort of is quality about saving costs or is quality actually about improving care? I think the example of -of end-of-life care is really um, where you see these issues dovetailing. So in the care of patients at the end of life in this country, we provide very overly aggressive care. We see that patients go to the intensive care unit um, shortly um, before they die. They have multiple hospital admissions. They often... um, actually undergo um, chemotherapy in the weeks close to close to the end of life. And these things are very, very expensive. And actually, when you ask patients what they want, and there have been lots of studies showing this, patients want to die at home with their families. And so, and actually, if you ask oncologists what they would want, 70% of them say, I would want to be on hospice at the end of life. And so you've got a situation where the care that we're providing is not actually in line with what we would want for ourselves or what patients want, at least some of the time. And so if you start to think about changing the culture of how we care for patients at the end of life, you actually have significant cost savings by um, lowering such such aggressive utilization at the end of life um, and by um, bringing care more in line with what patients want. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think that physicians or oncologists' behavior um, seems so uh, blind to their own wishes, mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. as you've explained, or what the wishes of the patient may be? Or do you think we get so uh, attached to the patients that we no longer maintain the objectivity that is required to know when, gee, I'm not really helping this patient anymore or my ability to help the patient mm-hmm. in terms of quantity of life is I think all of those off. elements are true. So 
So one factor is that we don't receive training in having discussions at the end of life as we go through fellowship. And many oncologists and hematologists went into this field with the idea that we would be able to cure cancer and save lives. And so there is a feeling of failure when a patient has progressive disease and you're running out of disease-modifying things to offer them. I think that's one very strong reason. Another reason is I think there's a fear of causing the patient emotional distress um, and really inflicting suffering by having those conversations. Um, and then on a more cynical note, our healthcare system rewards the kind of care um, that that leads to aggressive treatment. So we are paid on a fee-for-service basis for providing chemotherapy, for having rapid focused office visits, long, the kinds of care, the kinds of conversations about goals of care are hard to have. They're long discussions, um, and there's no clear-cut reimbursement pathway for that kind of care. Hmm. Well, that is a little cynical, mm-hmm. but I, I hear what you're saying. I, it seems to me that... Um, in our um, sort of culture, it's almost as if the family and maybe the patients kind of need to see this escalation of complexity and sickness mm-hmm. before they're willing to accept mm-hmm. um, that this is a terminal illness mm-hmm. or something like mm-hmm. that. And that's just kind of occurred to me as we were talking. I, I think that there's a culture where um, as patients get sicker and come into the hospital, where they're often cared for by doctors who are not their primary outpatient oncologist, the repeated admissions begin to signify the end of life. And so those conversations start in the inpatient setting. But the truth is, if you look at solid tumor patients, on average, a patient who has a metastatic solid tumor who's admitted to the hospital is actually very likely to die within the next three or four months. So if you wait till that hospitalization, it's probably already too late to make a big difference in the patient's quality of life. And that's where the issue of cultural change comes about. And we need to start having these discussions much earlier in the course of disease, especially for diseases that are not going to be curable. And and it needs to be an ongoing, iterative discussion with the patients about what to expect from treatment and, and the kinds of treatment they would want in multiple scenarios as their disease progresses. Well, this is really uh, such an important set of topics, and we're going to want to come back to them after the break. But in the meantime, we are going to take a short break for a medical minute. In 2014, 200,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer, and in Connecticut alone, there'll be over 2,500 new cases. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. New treatment options and surgical techniques are giving lung cancer survivors more hope than they've ever had before. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven to test innovative new treatments for lung cancer. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial at Yale aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. 
This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Karen Adelson, and we were discussing, or are discussing, the crisis in cancer care. Uh, Karen, what is the crisis in cancer care? Are we are we having one? Yeah, we d- are unquestionably having one. Um, the costs of cancer care are increasing exponentially. The costs of new drugs have um, doubled in the last several years and are increasing at a rate that is absolutely unsustainable. New drugs that are approved for cancer care cost on average of ten to $12,000 per month. Patients are going bankrupt from the cost of their co-pays for their care. Um, and, in, and increasingly, it's not clear that we're getting better outcomes for the amount of money that we're spending. And so we really need to self-consciously begin to say, what are the interventions we're doing that benefit patients and that give patients the kinds of care they want? And where is there waste in the system that we can really begin to tease out? It seems so hard because, you know, as these new drugs, which many of which really are miracle drugs, it seems Mm -hmm. to me, get approved, they go to these various groups that make guidelines and they get incorporated somewhere in a guideline Mm -hmm. and then of course doctors want to use them and patients you know patients talk on the internet Mm -hmm. and among Mm -hmm. themselves and in support groups and they hear about the great new difungomuctane targeted Mm -hmm. therapy Mm -hmm. and why wouldn't they want it Mm -hmm. doesn't everybody want to be treated with the latest best yeah so i think we need to look at what drugs are miracle drugs and what drugs are really making a difference and what drugs are just me too drugs Um, So in the history of drug approval for cancer, drugs were often approved in the stage four setting just by a measure of either causing a tumor to shrink or preventing the amount of time before a tumor grew. But they don't, not every drug that gets approved actually improves patients' quality or quantity of life. Um, In the UK, they have a whole governing agency called NICE that actually takes value into account and says, is the benefit of this drug worth the cost? Not always so nice if I hear some yeah. of my colleagues in the right, UK. Right. So, you know, while we have our miracle drugs like imatinib for the treatment of CML or, or trastuzumab for the treatment of breast cancer that really have profound impact, we also have a lot of drugs for which billions of dollars have been spent that don't always make a huge difference in a patient's quantity or quality of life. Take the example of bevacizumab in breast cancer. That's Avastin, is that right? Avastin, yeah, which was actually approved in breast cancer on that marker of the cancer going more time before it grew again. Um, And then as more studies came out, it became clear that it really wasn't having any impact on patients' overall survival, and the FDA actually withdrew approval for that drug. Hmm. So just to clarify, it it looks like it slowed down the progression Mm -hmm. of the breast cancer, but patients weren't living any longer? Is that exactly. what turned out to be the case? Yes, yes. But isn't slowing down the progression of value in and of itself? Or? It, it's it, not necessarily. Um, I think it depends on whether it improves clinical symptoms. So, mm. you know, if the endpoint is strictly something that you see on a CAT scan, that may not have clinical significance for the patient. And as is the treatment with many metastatic um, disease presentations, patients get drugs in sequence. And so just because you improve one moment in time doesn't mean it has impact on the overall trajectory because they're going to go on to get four or five more drugs in the future. Hmm. 
you know, it seems to me that societally this seems so difficult because the pharmaceutical companies, you, you can say what you want about them, but they do spend gazillions of dollars mm-hmm. developing these these wonder drugs mm-hmm. or hopefully mm-hmm. wonder drugs, right? So they've mm-hmm. got costs they want to recoup mm-hmm. and they serve to make a profit in our mm-hmm. capitalist system. Mm-hmm. And so they get their, their approval and yet it sounds to me like from what you're saying that we haven't really done the assessment to know whether or how this should fit in and for which patients. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden you and I are able to prescribe anything we want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so our FDA, the agency which um, allows for a drug approval process, is actually not allowed to take cost into account. So if a drug looks like it has some benefit and if it's safe, the, the drug gets approved regardless of whether or not it, quote, has high value. And so we certainly don't want to decrease the entrepreneurship and the initiative of discovering these amazing, really increasingly miracle treatments. But at the same time, we probably shouldn't be bankrupting our system, paying for drugs that don't overall have a large impact. Hmm. Well, it seems like this whole area is really just open for uh, all sorts of kind of research questions. Is there anything Mm -hmm. that you're involved with Mm research-wise in this area? So, yeah, I think one of the most exciting things that I'm working on now is um, a grant that we got for a randomized trial. Um, And it's a very, very different type of randomized trial because it's actually the physicians who are randomized. Um, So it's funded by the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, which is a new agency funded through the Affordable Care Act that is looking to improve the quality of care and the evidence for different treatments to help patients and physicians make decisions about what they use. You may have heard the term comparative effectiveness research. I heard the term death panels. Is that the same thing? (laughs) No, not at all. It's very different. Um, So I worked on a grant that um, is actually looking at teaching oncologists to have discussions about goals of care. And so the oncologists are actually randomized to educational sessions about conducting goals of care discussions. And then the really exciting part is that the oncologists in the intervention group will go through four consults with a palliative care doctor who's trained to have goals of care conversations using a really proven scripted format for the best way to have those discussions with empathy built in, with identifying that the patient understands their prognosis. And through each of those four consultations, which are done with the oncologist's own patients within their own practice, the oncologist takes on more and more elements of this proven format for having goals of care conversations. And at the end, we're going to ask the patients, were you able to address your goals of care? Do you feel you had this kind of conversation? And and we're going to try to measure whether patients who are in the intervention oncologist group actually receive care that's more in line with their wishes than the patients who are in the standard arm. Fascinating. So the control group does the conversations with the patients but isn't prepped. Is that right? Or hasn't been trained? And are these young... They may not do the conversations. They will go along according to their normal practice. I see. So it's not that everybody... has the sort of test conversation mm-hmm. with a readout. Mm-hmm. It's not like that. No. Right. It's yeah. just the normal care. Yep, yep, so yep. When But the just... patients will be surveyed. Right. And do the doctors know that their patients are going to be surveyed at some point? Or... Yes, yes, so yes, yes. everyone yes, knows yes, that. Yes, yep. They'll, the, the doctors will enter into it willingly, not knowing which arm they're going to get randomized to. I see. So 
So even the ones who are in the control group at least should have their antennas up that, wow, I should probably – they should up their game a little bit just for being in the study, right? Absolutely. There may may be sort of an an intervention effect even on the control arm. Yeah. But that's okay. This is going to test whether the intervention helps beyond, you know, just sort of a normal, you know, antenna going up or a a normal awareness. And and is this very – junior doctors or will you also include no, experienced so, physicians? So this is, this is a great question. This is for very experienced oncologists. Um, we have a community site, an academic hospital, and a city hospital. Um, and, and it's for established oncologists who are treating patients in those settings. I think if we see a positive effect, I could really imagine this being incorporated into oncology fellowship training in the future. Um, yeah, that seems like a no-brainer. Yeah. It's interesting to think that you can retrain an old mm-hmm. dog, like I might mm-hmm. call myself uh, mm-hmm. in this case. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I think I'm pretty good at it, but mm-hmm. I'm sure there's always more mm-hmm. to learn. Mm-hmm. I think the study will test whether we can be retrained. Yeah, well, that's yeah. really fascinating. Yeah. And how many physicians will be involved in this study? Um, Hundreds uh, or dozens? No, no, or? no. Probably 25 to 30. Yeah, it sounds like it's pretty labor-intensive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it is. It is. There's a lot of documentation, analyzing transcripts, audio tapes, um, to really start to understand the nature of the conversations that we're having. So it sounds like you've got this um, sort of big quality piece, uh, which mm-hmm. is so important for uh, the care at Smilo. You've got kind of this research piece, which is kind of establishing you in the you know, in the forefront of measuring uh, and impacting quality nationally or internationally. And then you also have a clinical oncology practice. Is that mm-hmm. true still? Yeah. So I'm a breast cancer oncologist, have been for many years. Um, and breast cancer actually, because it's often a curable disease, is one of the diseases in which we see that many quality metrics focus. Um, um, and it's it's through my patients. They're my eyes and ears. So I say to every single patient I see, listen, if there's something wrong with the process of your care, you better tell me because that's how I'm going to know what's going on. Um, and I think if I did not treat patients, I would really, really lose touch with what it means to provide quality care. So given those three major jobs, uh, I'm assuming you have no personal life or children mm-hmm. or anything like that, right? <laughs> I've got two kids. Oh, I've I know two. you do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes, sometimes they 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 do feel uh, they could use a little more of me present. I think all of all children of professional parents feel that way. And I I think that, you know, we just do the best they can. We do our best. best we can. Quality at home, quality at work. Uh Uh So, uh, so that's fascinating. So it sounds like you've Mm -hmm. totally got your, your plate full. And um, I'm just wondering if um, you came from Mount Sinai, do you feel the culture here is different? And, And if so, in what ways? It is different. It is different. So in terms of translational science and um, treatment-focused cancer research, it's much stronger. Um, We have just tremendous faculty doing really exciting, cutting-edge clinical research Um, um, and and very close involvement with the basic scientists as well. Um, In terms of the culture of palliative care or goals of care or patient-centered care, I think that has not been as active a topic here at Yale as it was at Mount Sinai where I came from. Mount Sinai probably has the strongest palliative care department in the country. Mm. But interestingly, in many most of my years there, there was very little intersection between 
the oncologists and the palliative care doctors. And one of my early projects was about bringing palliative care into standard oncologic care. And I did a I did um, a quality intervention, which got a lot of um, publicity through the ASCO Quality Conference. Uh, That's over the American a year ago. Society of Clinical Oncology. American Society of Clinical Oncology's Quality Conference, where we developed standardized criteria for inpatients who had metastatic solid tumors for involvement of palliative care. So if patients had stage four disease or uncontrolled symptoms or had been in the hospital for a long time or had been readmitted within the prior month, they were automatically seen by palliative care. And it it bypassed the oncologist's role in that process. And the palliative care doctors were allowed to address whatever needs the patient had. And what we saw is that one intervention had tremendous impact on the inpatient mortality rate, not saying that we cured our patients or that they weren't dying, but they began to die in more appropriate settings than in the inpatient acute care oncology ward. So they went to either a palliative care unit or to hospice or to home hospice. Um, And we actually dramatically lowered our 30-day readmission rate, which is one of the quality metrics that we all look at. And again, I think we lowered the readmission rate by by doing a better job um, addressing prognosis so that patients went home knowing that they were likely to get sicker with a plan to go into hospice or, or you know, um, to know where their disease was going. Um, and so I think, I think it, um, it, it had tremendous impact in that sense. And then we also really saw a significant increase in our use of hospice. And um, did the oncologist push back about that, feel like their their bounds so, were being overstepped. So it's about, I think, timing and readiness. Um, so yes, there were some oncologists who did push back, but um, I think that the palliative care department at Mount Sinai had spent years and years building goodwill. And then the study was real, or the intervention was really pushed by myself and a colleague of mine, um, and we were both oncologists. So it came from within. within. There's no way that um, a department outside could have done it. Dr. Karen Adelson is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Chief Quality Officer for Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.